Hello and welcome to the Sportscope podcast. My name is Ryan Walker and with me, as per usual, is the methodical Reuben Williams. How are you today, mate? I'm fantastic, Ryan. That little change-up wasn't so methodical, but I liked it mm. a lot. Uh, yeah, it's great to be chatting. It rolled off the tongue. I enjoyed the flexibility in your in your intro. It was nice. Yeah. There's method to the madness, I haven't known. <laughs> Uh, but, yeah, mm. there was a slight change there. I actually can't recall what I said, but um, it might happen for the next episode. I don't know. Maybe we'll keep changing it. Well, anyway, we can listen um, back to it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, huge guest on the show today, Sarah Stiles, who is uh, the director at the Office for Women in Sport and Recreation, Victoria. Massive discussion. Uh, but what were some things that you loved from uh, our chat with Sarah? Yeah, Sarah was phenomenal to chat with because her background is just incredibly diverse. As you'll hear her explain better herself, she comes through a a start in investment banking and then ends up in sport and then ends up running the entire state department for female sport. But one of the things I loved was her attitude towards some of the big decisions, you know, how how she like embraces the risks attached to it and some of her processes to making sure that they, they come off. Yeah, love it, mate. Um, I loved her 101 of stakeholder management. I think we did reference on the show, but every single job description nowadays has some sort of stakeholder management involved, uh, very broad topic. But I think she, she, she broke it down quite nicely for us and I think everybody out there who's looking at job descriptions at the moment will definitely find stakeholder management on there. So, it was good to get the rundown from her. Well, she is a master in that space. So, there is no better person in the sports industry to learn from yeah. than Sarah. Alrighty. Well, grab a pen and enjoy this chat with Sarah Styles. Sarah, welcome to the Sports Grad Podcast. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you, Ruben. It's so good to be here. Sarah, we've been trawling through your your LinkedIn profile and there's a quite a wide variety of, of different roles as you go down the page. Um, I'm wondering, as your career has taken a whole lot of different turns, is there a, a set of guiding principles or a vision that you hold on to when you're making decisions about where to go next? Because there is a, a fair difference in a few of your roles. So, I'm wondering, how do you make those decisions in your career? Yeah, of course. So, it's funny, if I think about what was a vision I had, I I didn't really have one. So if, if I kind of take me back to being younger, um, so I grew up in southwest Victoria, little country town, um, and I didn't necessarily know what I wanted to do, but I had this vision, to use your word, I had this vision of I was this woman wearing a suit going to work in the city. And that is an extremely, like, general uh, <laughs> vision <laughs> Um, but, you know, I had come from some very a very large family, but a, a family of farmers um, and of like a lot of nurses, um, hospitality workers. And so the idea of wearing a suit and going to work in the city was actually very different. I didn't know anybody that did that. So that was kind of this vision that I had for myself without necessarily knowing what on earth was I actually doing when I went to work. So for me, it was a case of... I suppose my guiding principle has been the sense of what is it that I enjoy and how do I find that? Um, I didn't want to 
hate going to work every day. And I mean, that might sound silly, but, you know, I, I wanted to do something that I thought mattered. I wanted to do something that didn't make me think I was sort of wasting my life away in like a little cubicle. Um, so, you know, at the end of school, um, I, again, I, I knew that I wanted to be this sort of person wearing a suit, you know, going to the office, but um, didn't necessarily know what. So I had gone on to study um, a Bachelor of Commerce and a Bachelor of Science at, at Monash. And that was because that was kind of my two broad fields of um, academic interest, at least, which um, led to me being a investment banker. Um, so I was working in mergers and acquisitions at Macquarie. And the funny thing is, that's a, probably a bit of a funny way to start a career that's now in sports administration. But there's actually this red thread that runs through a lot of my career, which is uh, my interest in change management. Um, and even how I found out about an investment bank, you know, an investment bank is a long way from a dairy farm in southwest Victoria. Um, and that was, I was actually studying organisational psychology on the science degree side of, of what I was doing. And um, I was learning about this idea of like when you put companies together and it was really this sense of, okay, well, that is apparently called M&A and apparently investment banks do M&A and Macquarie is an investment bank. Oh, they've got an internship program. I'm going to have a go. And so that was actually the complete kind of wrong direction. The thought process was fundamentally flawed because an investment bank actually does everything up to the point change management is needed and then it leaves and then everybody else keeps going. But it was it's really interesting, and this is only a bit with hindsight that I can kind of tell the story because you don't necessarily know at the time why is it that you're being attracted to certain things over other things. But that idea of change management then continued around what I now do today. So, um, you know, the idea of working in gender equality in sport and how do you create more opportunities for women working in sport. This is, again, around this idea of change management. So, you know, I suppose a few other guiding principles in there is one of reflection. I'm a really big one on reflection of looking back and kind of go, okay, well, what are the lessons that I'm learning? And that is a part of how do you help yourself make those decisions. Um, there's one in there around being willing to take risks. So, um when I joined Cricket Australia in 2014, at that point I was in my first corporate role after working at Macquarie at Medibank and I was working on the Medibank IPO when the very kind of out of nowhere opportunity to join cricket came up. And I can remember thinking at that time this was something I was really interested in going and doing, even though every single person bar literally like one friend told me it was a bad idea. So that willingness to take risks to know, well, this is something I'm fundamentally interested in because I had always been interested in working in sport, even if I didn't necessarily know how to make that happen. And so kind of that that willingness to take risks is probably, and back yourself is probably another one of those guiding principles. So not kind of always look for the easy option, look for the thing that you look at and you kind of go, oh, that sounds like a bit of fun. You know, that sounds like a challenge I want to do. It's funny how like when you do take a risk, it always seems so daunting at the time, but once you jump into it and you start going, you then get validation for making that move and every time you do take another risk, it just becomes easier and easier. Have you, have yeah. you found that the same? Um, 
I think I think you're right, and that 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 holds true for so many things in your career. That when you do something for the first time, it can be new and it can be scary. Even starting somewhere for the first time, and say when you finish a job and you started a new organisation, so the second place you've ever worked, that's going to feel strange and unusual. And you know what? Eventually, you're going to do it that. Well, I don't want to say that much because you know you probably don't want to do it fifty times in your career. But when you when you get a chance to do things again, you're getting more comfortable, you're getting more comfortable knowing how you work, what you bring to the table. Um, and so you're right, yeah, you probably get more comfortable with it and you get comfortable with how you judge those risks. I can remember when I was making that decision to join Cricket Australia, um, the, the way I actually ended up making the decision was realising in my mind that if I did this, if I left where I was, if I kind of changed career paths, I might regret it, but I knew if I didn't have a go, I would regret it. And one was a, you know, maybe the other was a definite. And that was ultimately how I backed myself to say this was the right move. You know, you're entering in this knowing that you actually might realise you've made a mistake, but that's okay because you know why you're doing it. So, you know, in that respect, I suppose that's how I rationalise my thinking. Like that's how I kind of work through the risks. It's not about jumping in blindly. It's about sort of knowing yourself and why you're making those decisions. Sarah, one of the uh, the most stark jumps in your career, as you just mentioned, was when you worked for Medibank, where you were working in investor relations in preparation to take Medibank private, I think to the tune of $5.5 billion, I believe, if my stats are correct. Um, and then, of course, to Cricket Australia as the head of female engagement, it seemed like basically none of what you were doing at Medibank had anything to do with sport. So, so what sort of made you think that you were you were qualified for such a, a an awesome role yep. at, at Cricket Australia? All right, so good question. The one thing I'll correct you on is Medibank Medibank wasn't going private. Medibank was going public. Um, oh so, no. Oh. Because it was owned by the government and it was um, going on the stock market for the very first time. So Medibank, why I was actually at Medibank was um, I had been at Macquarie for five years um, and felt that I'd built up a big, like a good foundation of skills. Um, So like investment banks are an excellent place to start your career for people who are sort of um, interested in that space. Culturally, it wasn't the right fit for me. You're talking extremely long hours like a relentlessness of extremely long hours. And so at the end of that five years, I was pretty burnt out. Like I wasn't in a great place. I didn't feel great about myself. And like physically, I wasn't necessarily healthy either. So when I left there, and I'm going to go on a tangent in a second about the piece that's missing in this story, what I was really interested in was not necessarily knowing still what I wanted to do, but knowing that the idea of how do you develop strategy was a really uh, that was an interest for me, and so I thought even if I didn't necessarily know what was the job title I was going for, combining the investment banking skills with that strategy development, I thought was a really nice complement. So that was the conversations I was having through my network, because a lot of those jobs were the like they weren't the ones listed on Seek. These were the ones that kind of were coming through your network, like they so often do in sport as well. So um, what drew me to the Medibank? Um, opportunity because I originally joined as senior strategy advisor to their private health insurance business and it was the health focus of that company 
So Medibank was very much about they didn't see themselves as a payer of bills. They saw themselves as a health company because if Australians could fundamentally get healthier, that was good for their business. Um, now, people might kind of have, have be a bit sceptical if insurers actually think like that, but I fundamentally did believe that and I thought they did believe that. So that was why I went to Medibank over the other things that had presented there. Um, so I'd been in a strategy role when the IPO got confirmed and then shifted across to that space. So by this point in my career, I had kind of worked as an investment banker where you have this really broad skill set around um, financial skills and modelling and working with stakeholders and communication and a whole bunch of stuff. I'd then worked in strategy development and now I was working in investor relations. Um, so the tangent on this story was what I was doing in my private life. So um, my now husband, who um, I've been with since I was a teenager actually, was a professional golfer. Uh, and so what we had started building when he wasn't travelling for golf was we had started building a chain of indoor golf centres called X-Golf. So we've got five of those in Victoria. Uh, we've just opened our first in Perth. Uh, one in Adelaide, two in Queensland and two in Sydney with um, a few more um, opening in the next few months. So I had this thing on the side. So fast forward to middle of 2014, um, you're actually going to get an exclusive actually because I don't normally share this bit. Um, so I started... Well, other thoughts got exclusive. Yeah, we do. We do. You heard it I here, Fab. Yeah, I started in the IPO role on the Monday. And I'm trying to remember, it was either the Monday afternoon or the Tuesday of that very first week when I had a headhunter get in touch. And that's the bit I don't normally share because I didn't feel great about what played out here because um, I was really excited about that IPO role. Uh, Medibank had been a really good place to work and um, the decision that I ultimately made wasn't that convenient for them. (laughs) So I normally... um, didn't mention to them that, yeah, it was literally like day one or two in what was a great role that this just kind of opportunity of a lifetime came up. So the Cricket um, cricket Australia had been advertising for a head of female engagement for a couple of months at that point. And it's a bit funny because you think Cricket had got to a point of realising we're not that great when it comes to this, so we're going to create this role and then we're going to put it on our website. And then they could, couldn't figure out why women weren't applying and it's just this really the irony of they're not applying because of the exact reason that you need this role so after a few months they had actually gone out to a headhunter so a headhunter is somebody who um, works with companies to um, recruit for particularly high pay well I don't want to say high paying roles that's a that's not a great way of explaining it but people like those more senior roles where there's a lot weighing on getting it right so they pay these people um, to help. So particularly your CEO roles, um, they, there would be headhunters involved. So Cricket Australia had gone and got a headhunter and that headhunter effectively had a brief to find an invest, a female investment banker who was interested in sport. So the reason that for that was because of that broad range of skills that you, de- um, that you develop in that environment. So around stakeholder management, as well as the ability to be a little bit of um, a generalist around, okay, you can do strategy development, you can do some comm stuff, you can, you've got the financial side covered. Um, I also by this point had a Master of Finance, so kind of was was pretty comfortable in that space. 
So that was how, really long way of answering your question, Ryan, but that was how this sort of person working in invest relations at Medibank got the invitation to say, is there any chance you want to come and have a chat? And the funny thing is when the recruiter got in touch, a great lesson here about always ask the question, always be curious. When the recruiter got in touch, they're like, oh, there's a strategy role we want to talk to you about. And I'm like, no, I'm good. I'm good. I've just started a new job, um, new role at Medibank. Things are really good here. It's a really good place to work. If anyone's ever seen it, amazing office. And I'm like, I'm, I'm pretty good. And then I just sort of generally had a chat because I had never met that headhunter before. And uh, it was at the very, very end of that sentence. Literally, we were saying goodbye. And I said, by the way, where was that job? Because like, I might have a friend or someone who's interested. Um, and I'm kind of thinking, like, who's probably not too happy where they are? And I'm assuming it's going to be at a bank or something. And he's like, oh, it's actually at Cricket Australia. Um, it is to run their new female strategy. And I remember the moment because I was walking through the office at the time and it is the only time in my entire life that I have spontaneously face-palmed. Like I'm literally walking, I've just gone, oh, you're kidding. Like, <laughs> like you could have said anything else in the world and I wouldn't have even blinked. I would have thought, I, you know, maybe this mate might be interested. But he said that and, honestly, it stopped me in my tracks because I'm like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> there had been all these these points through my life that I'd been interested in working in sport. I loved sport. I grew up in, in um, as I said, in this country town where, let's be honest, there wasn't too much to do apart from sport. I grew up in a really sporty family. Um, I originally thought I wanted to be a sports journalist. Um, and the very first time I stayed in Melbourne, actually, was as a work experience kid in the Herald Sun Sports Department. And that was when I was about 16, and I decided that, you know what, journalism wasn't for me. It was a big English lesson, like one continuous English lesson. I'm like, no, nah, that's not for me. And so I've gone down this path of deciding accounting and, you know, would be more interesting. Don't know what was going on for 16-year-old Sarah. Um, but anyway, um, so there had been this recurring theme of oh, I'm really interested in sport. And even when I left Macquarie and was trying to decide what would I like to do, I can remember thinking, oh, you know, how do you do that? Because there's got to be these big companies that run these things. But my network just didn't extend over there. And being kind of um, earlier in my career, I didn't necessarily have the tools to go, well, what could I do about that? And I can remember thinking uh, a young guy I worked with, his dad was chairman of one of the large sporting codes. Um, and I thought, oh, maybe I should, maybe I should ask for an intro. And then I thought, you know what, that's not fair on him. And so I left it um, and um, ended up, you know, that it was literally around about that week that the Medibank thing came up. And um, by that point, I'd had a few months off and I'd had a chance to have a break, which was really important. And, you know, that, that path um, played out. But I do remember that moment of thinking, well, there's kind of a connection I've got there. Should I do something with it? And I still think it was the right call at the time because that wouldn't have been fair on that guy. But at the same time, there are other ways and other opportunities of kind of thinking, well, how do you kind of sound out what you might be passionate about? How do you make the most of your network? Um, it's very an enormous amount of great luck that I then fast forward 18 months, got the exact opportunity I was looking for. 
Um, in a brilliant sport, like cricket is a really good place to work. Um, but, you know, I do wonder, <laughs> yeah, back to, you know, should I have been bolder? But it, it worked out. It worked out. Um, yeah. Sarah, I, I remember you telling me last year uh, that, you know, your job or your remit essentially as a head of female engagement was to make yourself redundant, to mm-hmm. get Australian cricket to a point where they no longer needed specific female positions. And in in the process, you know, you achieved some pretty incredible incredible things along the journey. Um, a lot of other people involved, but, you know, you're a major part of influencing, you know, the 87,000 people at the MCG for the Women's World Cup final, uh, a 2,000% increase in all girls teams which is phenomenal and a number of different strategic documents and reports that were deemed best practice globally um how did you get this started how did you um approach the first 18 months to change the trajectory of female cricket so i remembered what i was going to say at the end of my last one by the way which was the benefit of having a strong linkedin profile so if we think back to um, you know, that headhunter literally found me on LinkedIn because he got a hit on investment banker and this person had an interest in sport through my private company. So, um, you know, keynote, LinkedIn, you know, always keep it looking good, always keep it, you know, um, um, current. So on your actual question, so first 18 months, again, I'm a really big one of reflection. So I'm not going to pretend that we nailed that 18 months and everything was perfect because, you know what, if anybody says that, they're just not very good at reflection. Um, So what we did, so I came across at the back end of 2014 and in my head I thought, okay, I've got this summer to learn how the business of sport works because up to that point I had only really been a fan. Then I had next year to figure out what was actually what we were going to do and then we got next summer to start to do stuff. Totally wrong. Because actually you have this summer to figure out how the business of sport works and then you've got this summer as well to get all of your information ready to put in for budgets and put in for everything like that and then that gets locked down and then what you've got then, you've got the year to kind of get it in place to roll out next summer. So that meant those first few months were really intense because I was trying to figure out what was going on I was trying to build networks and, you know, maybe we come back to this role of networks because I was really feeling the fact that I had left my entire network behind. And so over the next 18 months, I've actually really heavily invested in building back out my own network in sport to to really help me get better at my job. Um, and so, yeah, in the, so we're, we're, I'm learning how things work. I'm learning what the processes of cricket are because, you know, that may not sound too much fun, but if you know you've got to inform a budget cycle but you don't know when that budget cycle is happening then you you know you're pretty much feeling away feeling yourself around or feeling around the room in the dark and then I actually had to figure out what was our answer so what I started doing was just having a lot of one-on-one conversations with people and when I because keep in mind even though I had had a strategy role in the past I had never led strategy development purely by myself like I was I also found myself in an interesting situation that the GM who hired me um, he had realized he'd actually made a mistake because not (laughs) 
that probably sounds bad, not a mistake in hiring me, but a mistake in his own personal life about he had been really passionate about cricket personally. And so he had um, moved away what he had done in his career and decided to join cricket about a year before I got there. And he had realised that was a mistake. So I'm moving into this new job and I've got um, my leader, my kind of advocate at the executive table has actually decided to leave. And so he's checked out and that ended up playing out over about five months. And I share that because that actually made things a bit tricky for me, again, only realising this in hindsight of how you're trying to influence what's going on at that that kind of that main table. So I'm trying to draft strategy. I'm trying to get traction on what that is. Um, and while that's kind of happening, um, that's kind of happening above. So um, what I did, so what I started saying before was I started having a lot of one-on-one conversations with people to get across how was, how, like, what was going on, what had happened in the past. I'm doing a lot of reading and all of this was helping inform what I was trying to build at, when I'd then go home at night. And it was actually a bit intense. I can remember thinking after about four months, I actually needed to revisit what my approach was because I was pushing myself too hard. And I was like, well, if I'd wanted to keep working hours like this, I would have stayed at Macquarie. So I had to pare back and kind of figure out what my right balance was. And that was actually a really good learning of when you do work on something that you're really passionate about, you still have to find time to switch off. But I'm going home, I'm taking all these learnings from the day's conversation and I'm inputting them into this sort of strategy model that I'm trying to build, which we call the Female Engagement Action Plan. And then um, we that eventually got to the point of pretty much being finished. I was getting quite a lot of pressure to get it finished because the recruitment, well, my recruitment had taken sorry, the recruitment for the role that I ended up taking had taken quite a bit of the previous year. So they were really impatient. So I was new, but they'd been waiting for it for a year. So this kind of tension between I need time versus they need the answer was really playing out. And so then it was about how do we, with this female engagement action plan, how do we build support for it? And this was one of, well, actually there's probably two key learnings from this time. One key learning was about I can remember when we started talking to people about the female engagement action plan, some people said to me, but where's this come from? And I I would mean, but what do you mean? Like we've been meeting and you've been giving me all this information and see how this is in here. And yet the people didn't kind of, they were sort of saying, yeah, but where's it come from? (laughs) Like it's come from these conversations. But what I had done wrong was I hadn't painted the picture for the people when I was sitting down around, okay, this is the process that we're going through. So that was a really key learning and something that I say to anyone when they're developing strategy, you actually need to paint the picture of, okay, you know, now we're in consultation phase and then we're in this phase and then we're in this phase in order for people to realise how they're plugging in. The other thing I really learned through this time is when I first joined, there were seven people on the Cricket Australia executive team and there that in that seven group of seven, there was actually seven different perspectives of what I was there to do, which meant you could be working away and think, yep, I'm on the right path here. And one of those people might say, 100%, I agree. This is exactly how we thought your role was going to work. And then the very person sitting next to them might go, what the hell's going on here? That's not how I saw your role working. So if I had my time again, what I've said, or what I've always said is, I would have invested a lot more time in getting that key group of people 
on the same page in terms of how was my role going to work? What did we collectively think were the priorities? So that was a big one. So the other key things I was doing in that first 18 months was um, you you had to figure out how to work at scale. So I always used to smile when people would say to me, oh, you know, the work that you and your team is doing at cricket. And I'm like, oh, that's nice. You think I have a team. <laughs> Now, reality is there was a huge number of passionate people in cricket, and that's who I was working with. But in terms of the female engagement bit of the org chart of cricket, there was me. So I had to figure out how to work at scale. So, you know, how do you tap into different networks within the sport? So particularly, say, the community cricket team, and they were the ones that were then working across the country. So working with your Cricket Victorias, Cricket New South Wales, everything like that. Your Big Bash Clubs was another great network. So getting a chance to work when those um, big bash leaders were together um, and actually going and talking to them and then working at scale through there. So that was actually quite different from what I had originally anticipated, which was kind of you'd have to be getting on a plane quite a bit and, you know, flying to Brisbane, flying to Darwin, flying to Perth. You actually didn't because the, the sport wasn't arranged geographically. It was arranged by, you know, common function. So, you know, spending a lot of time going into that. And then, of course, the big one was um, some more kind of hands-on work around women's cricket. So what I quickly realised, because I didn't know much about women's cricket when I came on board, you know, my particular connection to the role when I was first shared with me was about how I had engaged with sport up to that point, which was as a female fan of men's sport. And so I can remember when I came on board And in those early weeks was learning about the team. I knew the team existed. Like I knew Belinda Clark and those women who had been, you know, legends when I was growing up. The Australian women's team had actually come to my hometown when I was a girl and I had watched them play. Um, But I didn't know much about them as they stood then. So in those early weeks, getting a chance to learn about what they had achieved and who they were as individuals, it was genuinely transformational around kind of thinking, like, do you see what cricket has got over here? Like, this is amazing. Um, So when I was about seven months in, um, that was the first series that that team, that team being the Australian women's team, that team played um, after I had joined, and that was the Away Ashes series in 2015. And so that was kind of getting a little bit more hands-on in, okay, well, what are we actually doing around promoting the team? Because we've got, you know, normally the answer would be they do nothing, um, and particularly for an away series. So how are we, what are we doing? You know, so we were setting up social media accounts for the first time um, and letting them work directly with fans. We were working on the communications. We were working on the overarching look and feel. We were integrating the men's and women's campaigns for the first time. Um, we were working internally to break down the barriers for cricket staff who felt that they were almost too embarrassed to own up for the fact that they didn't know who played for the Australian women's team and just kind of going, we don't care about that, let's just try and get better. So, you know, in that first series, we actually increased awareness of that team and that team had existed for 80 years by a third and that was incredibly fun. Like that was some really fun stuff. And it's a good lesson in there around, you know, it's not always the giant, big, flashy things where 
you're going to get the greatest experience because you know what? The giant big flashy things, there's probably a lot of people working on that. So sometimes it's the bit that is a bit more greenfield, that bit of, you know, that just needs some love and needs some attention that you've got this enormous opportunity to take from, you know, here to who knows where compared to when you're working on something that's actually really advanced and really kind of professional, you might have a chance to like move it a tiny bit. Whereas, you know, some of those other things, you've got a chance to make a huge difference and have amazing experience. And that was kind of that series for me. And then fast forward another six months. So when I'm just about 12 months into the role, you know, WBBL launches or starts, officially starts. So yeah, again, probably not exactly what you're after with your question, Ruben, but I hope there's a, there's a few bits and pieces in there. No, 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 they gave us a great lay of the land in, in the early days and and even, you know, some of that engagement that you were trying to create between the players and the staff, you know, we certainly felt uh, uh, later on down the track when we joined in, in 2017, I particularly remember uh, Elisa Villani and Meg Lanning coming into the office one day to talk with the staff and being incredibly nervous to go up to Meg and Elise with my keep cut to get a signature <laughs> on it. And uh, one of our one of our earlier guests, Ermila Rosario, the uh, team manager of the Australian women's cricket team, uh, gave me a fair bit of flack for getting my keep cup signed. But um, it's something I still cherish. <laughs> no, no, I, I love it. I reckon that's great. Um, and that's what we were doing. We were trying to build that connection between the team and um, the people worked working in cricket because we needed the people working in cricket to realise this team's growth was reliant on them. Because, you know, and this holds true for a lot of women's sport, the lack of profile about women's sport, particularly if we wind the clock back five or six years, has nothing to do with the athletes and everything to do with the sports system that has sat around them. And the sports ecosystem is probably a better description because that's when you're bringing in the broadcasters and you bring in corporate Australia and you're bringing in the media, you know, we have had world championship women's teams and world championship female athletes for generations, but they just haven't had the opportunities that their male counterparts have had. So there was no point in, you know, 2014-15 us pretending otherwise. We instead had to go, all right, so if people don't know who they are, let's just give them some information. And you know what? When our players go along to an event, Let's not make that politician awkward by him not knowing who he's speaking to. We're going to put name badges on everyone. So we're going to put name badges on the Australian women's team to make it easier for somebody to be able to leave and go, oh, you know what, I spoke with so-and-so. They were amazing. And just those little things that if you put your ego aside and say what do we actually need to change stuff as opposed to what do we want to do because they're not necessarily the same things. Um, you know, that's where you might learn, you know, where are the bits and pieces that you need to look at. Sarah, it seems a large part of your roles, you know, throughout your career is is stakeholder management. Uh, and, and at CA, that obviously involved everyone from the exec team to, to state bodies to, to all departments, really. Uh, and then, of course, people in government. Now, when you look at a lot of job descriptions now, I reckon stakeholder management is something pretty much every single one uh, will ask for. So, 
given this is a bit of an area of expertise for you, why don't you give us a little 101 on how to manage stakeholders professionally? <laughs> well, I think, you know, the, the first lesson there is there is no stock standard approach. So, you know, if I can give any advice to how you're figuring out how to approach your stakeholders, first and foremost is you need to give yourself time to do some thinking and planning around it. So, you know, start by thinking about, well, who are my stakeholders? Like what are the groups they sit in? And a group might consist of one person or a group might consist of, you know, God, it could be tens of thousands if you're actually working in the community sports space. So who are your stakeholder groups? And then think, okay, well, what do we actually, what do they need or what do I need from them? And getting really clear about that. And then actually formulating what is your plan for those stakeholder groups. So being really methodical around thinking this through. Now, methodical doesn't mean inflexible. You've got to adapt. There might be opportunities that present themselves that you hadn't thought of and you run with. Um, you're also going to be you're going to be testing to see what works and what doesn't, and kind of um, feeding that into your thinking. But giving yourself like stakeholder management in my mind goes back to having a plan and kind of having a sense of what you're going to do, but also just um, investing time into um, into forming good relationships and good relationships in a whole bunch of areas because, you know what, I can tell you, your job gets infinitely easier when instead of approaching someone you don't know and trying to kind of say, this is what we want to do, can you please help me, da 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 Instead, you're calling up and go, hey, how's it going? I haven't seen you for a while. By the way, can we have a chat about this? Like enormously <laughs> different world that you're working in when you're able to do that. The other thing to keep in mind when it comes to stakeholder management, and this this holds true, you know, sometimes stakeholder management might seem a bit formal. This, this what I'm about to say, applies in all walks of professional life, in personal life too. I remember when I was in a training session and it was around communication and they reiterated that you can only ever control your side of relationship. So if, Ryan, you and I are talking, I can only ever control 50% of that because I can only ever control my side. So, you know, when you think about stakeholder management, you've got to incorporate that in that, you know, how do you want to present yourself to the world? How are you going to respond to how that person is coming at you? Because you can't change how that person is coming at you. You can only change how you respond. And hopefully, you know, um, if you're in a tricky situation, how you respond can de-escalate a situation or it might bring a person around to perhaps being in a better place. But that's also one to kind of really keep in mind that stakeholder management, you can't rely on your plans being and person X is going to change their mind because you can't control person X, you can only control yourself. And I touched on there around, you know, how you want to present yourself to the world because, you know, what I've come to realise is optimism and positivity is a really important part of who I am. So if I think about how I like to approach my stakeholders it is very much with this sense of optimism, uh, you know, very much built around a language of opportunity and growth because that's how I want to live my life um, and I don't want to be working, you know, what's the opposite of that around negativity, around cynicism, around undermining people. That's not – I don't want to live like that. I don't want that kind of bad energy 
you know, following me home at the end of the day. So, you know, having a sense of what's important to you and how that influences how you choose to act. And it is around conscious acting because some days we're feeling great and things are easy and some days things are crappy and, you know, maybe you had a bad commute or you've got some bad personal stuff going on or maybe it was just a crap day, you got out of the side of the bed, wrong side of the bed. And it's on those days that actually you've got to work harder at choosing how do I want to go about what I'm doing. And that's a really important thing when you're thinking about stakeholder management as well. Um, so, you know, what's what's the key things in there? You know, take the time to invest in relationships. Take the time to have the coffee chats or, you know, when we're working in a COVID world, the virtual coffee chats, whatever that might be, take the time to plan Actually sit down and figure out who it is and what you're trying to achieve and what they might need from you or want from you and how can you help them as opposed to always asking for something. Think about the fact that you can only control your half of a relationship. You know, there's a lot of it just comes back to giving yourself space to think as opposed to only ever reacting. Alrighty, well that ends part one of our chat with Sarah Styles. Rubes, uh, I mean a plethora of takeaways from that episode, but what were some that really caught your eye? Yes, and just the first of a plethora of takeaways as well. But the first one that I, I'm, I'm taking away from this, and this personally, sometimes we try to associate it for students, but for me personally, her approach to stakeholder management around being methodical but not inflexible, I think is a great little tagline that's easy to remember and a great model that you can apply to how you approach your stakeholders. And to be honest, it's not something that I thought ever needed like a model or an approach, so to speak. It seems kind of a bit funny to think, oh, this is how I'm going to manage this set of people, but you need an approach and Sarah's got a terrific one, but I think methodical but not inflexible is a great simple way to break it down. Fantastic. Uh, yeah, what a great statement. I think that might, uh, you know, come out of your mouth a few times after this episode. Um, one thing that I loved was her, she spoke about the, the might regret versus would regret. You know, when she was faced with a, a, an opportunity at CA from a, her former role, she sort of thought, okay, like if I don't do this, I, I might regret it. But if I, you know, if I do go this path, I, I definitely will regret it. And it's kind of like she had to choose what one's better and I think she made the right choice. And it's kind of like when you know you're going to regret something, well, take the chance if you, if you might. And I think, you know, a lot of people can relate to that when they sort of take a leap of faith into something that they haven't done before or a new job or, or anything like that. Um, you should always take that chance. So that was a really, really cool statement that she said. Mm, it, it's a great framework for, for weighing up decisions. And yeah. we've, we've talked to a lot of smart people who seem to have a lot of good frameworks for making decisions. And they, they always seem to end up in a pretty good spot. So that was another good one to learn. Yeah. But finally, last, last actionable for me was make sure your LinkedIn is clean and up to date because even for, for people like Sarah, as you heard her say, that still has an influence on her career. Uh, and it's particularly helpful for podcasters like us who want to, you know, borrow some stats from her LinkedIn too. So, uh, in case we end up interviewing you, please make sure your LinkedIn <laughs> is is up to date. But uh, yeah, that's a final takeaway from me. All righty. Well, uh, that's part one done. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.